Morning, friends. Happy Mother's Day. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I want to say just a few things about moms before we get into our message today. You know, moms are such a crucial part of our lives, um, and they're specifically crucial to our spiritual lives. I don't know if you know this, but George Barna did research a number of years ago, and he was kind of researching what is, what is it that creates vibrant faith in people? Like when you meet someone and they're just alive in Christ and they have vibrant faith, what are the factors that led to that reality? The number one factor was mom. Mom has such a great impact. And so we know that you moms carry a lot, a lot of things that so often go unnoticed. And so today we want to notice you. We want to see you. We want to love on you. When I was a kid, um, my mom was such a crucial part of helping me through some difficult periods of my life. I remember we were, when I was in the fifth grade, we moved to Montgomery, Alabama for 10 months. So, you know, I'm the new kid for 10 months, and then we're moving again, and it was a tough transition. There's some things happening that year. I got bullied that year. Can you believe that I got bullied? I did. And I remember, like, being anxious and worried about going to school, and my mom coming into my room at night and, like, tickling my back and just speaking words of comfort and peace and security over me. And uh, in this last year of my life, this last couple of years, with just everything that's been happening in the world and things that have been going on in our church, it's been a particularly hard year for me. And once again, my mom has been a source of encouragement and support and listening and help. And so I guess I'm living proof that you're never too old to need your mommy, right? That's, that's how a lot of us feel. Um, even when we don't feel that way, maybe it's still true. Um, so as we celebrate moms today, I also want to say that I know this can be a tough day, uh, difficult for so many reasons. Maybe things are hard right now for you as a mom because momming is tough. Maybe you and your mom are not on great terms or you haven't been able to become a mom and that is a hard reality that you are living with or maybe you've lost your mom and she's no longer around maybe it was just this past year or maybe even a number of years ago and yet today reminds you man i i miss her i miss her so for a lot of reasons this can be a hard day and yet at the same time we want to celebrate and we want to thank all of you moms out there because you are a huge part of our lives. You are one of the ways God chooses to work in and through us. And not because you're perfect, but because he's perfect and he'll use you even in your imperfection. Isn't that a beautiful gift for you moms today from the Lord? Anyway, let me pray and then we'll get into our message this morning if you would join me. Father, today I do just want to thank you for moms, not for perfect mothers, because we know that you are only the only perfect parent out there. I want to thank you, Lord, for the way that you have worked in our lives through moms and even mother figures that you've given us. Um, thank you for using our strengths and our weaknesses and even our imperfections for your glory in this world. So may today be a day of peace and hope and joy for specifically for the mothers out there, Father. That's our prayer together as a church, and we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen? Amen. 
Yeah, let's say amen for our moms. That's good. Hey, today we are in week two of a new series that we're starting that we're calling Resurrection Implications. This is about the impact of the gospel on our lives. This is about, okay, the tomb is empty, death has been defeated, and so what does that mean for how we now live as followers of Jesus in this world? And in this series, we're looking at eight different verses from the New Testament that talk about this reality. And as we look at these verses, we are going to be memorizing them together. This is the challenge. This is the invitation we're offering you to memorize over these eight weeks, eight verses of Scripture that you can carry with you in your mind. Today we're looking at a verse from Ephesians chapter 6. And we're going to read it together, and then I'm going to back up and kind of read the entire section that we're looking at today. But today on this Mother's Day, let's read our memory verse for this week from Resurrection Implications. Here we go. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, to stand. All right, let me back us up and I'm going to read the entire section here from Ephesians 6. Paul says this. Finally, this is kind of like final words from Paul. It's like concluding remarks, like, don't miss this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, Put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. All right, friends, uh, we're going to get into some of the different pieces of armor today, but before we do, I want to talk a little bit about what Paul is telling us about all of the armor. Here's the first thing he's saying. He's talking to us here about the seriousness of of the Christian life. What he's, what he's doing here is he's saying to follow Jesus in this world is a high-stakes endeavor. And we see this in the imagery that Paul chooses. He doesn't say, hey, let me tell you about the Christian life. It's sort of like a game of Monopoly. He doesn't say it's sort of like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. No, the imagery Paul uses is a military imagery. He uses war imagery. He says, if you're a follower of Jesus, welcome to the battle. You are in the army now. You never wanted to be, but here you are. Okay. The reason he does this is because he wants us to understand that the stakes are high and the consequences are great. He's saying to church people, walking with Jesus and allowing Christ to form you and to shape you and to pursue, like allowing the gospel to saturate your life should be a high, high priority that you pursue with urgency. And here's why. Because the enemy that we face is real and he is more powerful than we think. 
Notice in verse 12, he says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. What a prophetic statement, friends. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. The scripture is written over 2,000 years ago, and yet here we are today, and what a word for us as followers of Jesus in this world, in this culture right now. See, I, I don't think most Christians live this way. Have you noticed that our world is sort of moving back into a, a tribal mentality? This group versus that group. Us versus them. Everywhere you turn, you're being told, looking at a variety of issues, who's in, who's out? Who's on your side? Who's on the other side? Who can we blame? Who can we take our, out our frustrations on? Who can we take out our anger on? Who can we pin our hurt or our pain on? Have you seen this in our world? Just this week in the news, maybe you noticed it, groups of people gathering together across lines, holding up signs and shouting at one another over issues of our world. Here's my point. Here's Paul's point. It is so easy for us to fall into the worldly way of thinking, the worldly way of thinking that our battle in this world is simply against other people. That we just sort of buy into the world's way of doing battle we buy into sort of this culture war christianity where our, the whole point is just to sort of attack people in our culture who don't agree with us but our passage today paul is saying no 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 understand that's just such a surface level way of seeing and understanding the world because the battle for a follower of jesus runs so much deeper than that friends do you understand that christianity has some of the most nuanced, subtle, multi-dimensional understanding of evil in the world. Most people in the world want to just really simplify evil. That's evil, that's evil, this person's evil, this person's bad, right? But, but the Christian worldview forces us to go deeper in our understanding of the brokenness and hurt and pain and evil that we see in this world. The Christian faith says, it hits on a number of levels. First of all, the Christian faith says, know this, it hits close to home because it hits in you. Where's evil found in this world? Right here. Right in you and me. The scriptures call it the flesh. The flesh. That there are these desires and longings and tendencies in you and me that come out of the brokenness in us, this is what it says in Galatians 5.17, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. Does this verse like speak to your soul? Because this, I, this verse is like, oh, this is me thinking, the Bible knows my life. In fact, in these last few years, I don't think I've ever been as aware as I am in this season of the battle in me between the spirit and the flesh. What I sometimes want in the flesh and what God would, would want me to want. The battle I want to fight and the, the battle God wants to fight and how they are in conflict in my heart and in my soul. Do you see this in yourself? This is why Paul says, 
This, I see this in, Paul says, this is why I sometimes do what I don't want to do. I desire what I shouldn't desire. He talks about this openly, this battle between good and evil, even in himself. But then there's also another layer to evil and brokenness in our world. According to the scriptures, there's not just internal forces, there's external forces. There's societal forces. There's national and governmental systems that are wrong and broken. The Bible calls it the world. The Bible says the world is messed up. There is evil in this world. And again, we we see this all around us. And on one level, it's just common sense. Even even non-believers recognize these two truths, right? Even non-believers understand that there is stuff inside of us that needs fixing. This is why counselors and psychologists are packed to overflowing right now. Because everyone understands there's stuff in me that's messed up. This is everyone in our world, even non-believers understand that our systems need fixing. This is why the conversations about government and public policy are raging in our world in these days. Just read the news. It's all about systems reform. And as Christians, we don't reject that. We say, yeah. Yes, there's messed up stuff in us, in me. And yes, there's messed up stuff in the world. But as a Christian, we also understand that there is another layer. That underneath and around and driving all of that personal and societal brokenness are spiritual powers that want to leverage that stuff for our destruction. You see, there are spiritual powers in this world that are seeking to derail and destroy your life. This is why Paul says there's an urgency to this conversation. There's, there's, there's a seriousness to it because there are powers at work behind all that's happening that want to destroy us. This is why it says in verse 11, he says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. That word schemes in Greek, it comes from a verb that means to stalk. To stalk. Do you understand that Paul is saying here is that there are evil forces that are stalking you? Does that terrify you a little bit? Maybe just a little. I hope that it does just a tiny bit because Paul is saying to the church, wake up. He's saying you think you're out for just a a nice little stroll in Forest Park, but there is a mountain lion who is watching you and planning an attack. So he's saying be prepared, get ready. And he says don't delay. Don't wait to get ready. He says, get ready now. Verse 13, therefore put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. Notice that he doesn't say, if the day of evil comes. (laughs) Like, it might happen. He's saying, evil is coming. Struggle is coming. The, The enemy is prowling and the enemy will attack you. It is only a matter of time and so he says put on your armor now get ready for the battle you can't get ready for the battle once the battle has already started once the arrows are flying and the spears are stabbing and the swords are slashing you can't say hey can we pause this for a minute while i get dressed it doesn't work paul's saying get ready now be prepared 
And I love the word Paul chooses for that little phrase, stand your ground. That's the title of the message today. Stand your ground. Another translation might be resist. It's the same word here that James uses when he says in chapter four of his letter, resist the devil and he will flee from you. In other words, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to resist. Stand your ground. See, what Paul is telling us here is that as followers of Jesus in this world, we are now a part of the resistance movement. You're part of the resistance task force, the special ops unit that's been sent in to enemy territory to resist the evil that is advancing in our world. And Paul is saying, and your enemy is not going to just lay down and surrender peacefully. Our enemy is stalking us with the goal of our destruction. And so as followers of Christ, we must suit up and put on our armor and stand our ground. And the good news is this. God has given us the power to do so. We notice right away in verse 10, it says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. See, we don't fight the way the world fights. You see, sometimes as Christians, we think, yeah, we're in a battle, we're in a war, we're in a fight, and then we start to fight, and our fighting looks just the way the world's fighting looks, and yet our fighting should look oh so much different because our armor is different. We don't fight in the same way that the world fights. And so this is a, this is a great sort of exercise. When you find yourself living for Christ in this world and fighting for the kingdom of God, ask yourself, does my fighting look just like the fighting of unbelievers? Am I using the same tools and tactics that they are using? And if you find that you are, then you might want to re-look at your methods because God's ways and our ways, the world's ways, are not the same. We are to fight in His power. Our job is to suit up with the armor he's given us. And so let's take a quick look at each piece of the armor we are given to wear. It says in verse 14, Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Now, as Paul talks about this armor, he certainly has in mind a Roman soldier. All of his readers would have been familiar with Roman soldiers and all the pieces of armor that they would wear. And he's using this as an analogy. He's sort of saying, hey, our fight, you know, here's, here's what it looks like for us Take a look at this Roman soldier, and he's using this as a picture for us to understand. We're not as familiar with the Roman soldiers, um, as we have to walk through it a little bit. The belt of the Roman soldier would have been the very thing that supported everything else that the, the soldier would wear. It was, the belt is what sort of held everything together, right? It keeps the tunic sort of in place and you would hang different tools and instruments and weapons on the belt. If a soldier did not have a belt on, they would be a mess. And so when Paul uses this image for truth, he's not necessarily talking about like doctrinal truth. He's not talking about scripture. He's going to talk about scripture later. He's talking here about an overall sort of centering attitude towards truth. He's reminding believers that our commitment to truth is essential. Essential, In other words, to put on the belt of truth is to embrace an attitude that God's ways are the right 
and best ways to live in this world is to embrace an attitude that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That we want to reflect His way of thinking and speaking and acting and living in this world. That we buy into the way He would approach life. That we reject other ways of seeking the abundant life. Materialism, success, popularity. Right? You see, I think we're so often guilty of not sort of embracing this overall commitment to, I want to live God's way. His ways, His thinking is going to direct and guide all of my life and decisions. We sort of tend to go like, I'm going to do whatever makes me happy in life. I'm going to pursue the American dream and then add a little church. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. Every Paul is saying, no, 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 no. you got to put on the belt of truth. you got to understand the thing that holds it all together is this commitment to follow Jesus in this world. It, young people, and by the way, I'm looking around this room thinking, who are the young people in here? There's a few, there's a few, but I'd say if you're like under 60, you probably qualify. Um, don't take that the wrong way today. But young people, understand this truth. I can't, I mean, I feel like I, I want to say this to my kids all the time. Remember that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Remember that he is the one that will offer life that is truly life, the abundant life, and that if you follow him, you will truly find it. You can't follow all the ways of living and all the things of pursuing that the world offers and then sprinkle a little Jesus on top. This is not what Paul's talking about here. He's saying, allow the Lord to define what is right and good and true. That is the call here. That's the belt of truth. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist with the breastplate of righteousness in place. Now the breastplate of, of righteousness, the breastplate for a soldier was essential because it protected all the vital organs. If you were a soldier, you could take a shot to the arm or to the leg and you might survive, but you get stabbed somewhere in here and it's, it's curtains, right? It is all over. And so the reason that I believe Paul says the breastplate is righteousness is because one of the primary tactics of the enemy in your life is guilt and shame. If the enemy can convince you that you aren't good enough, that you aren't worthy, that you have no business representing Jesus in this world because of this, that, and the other thing, because if the enemy can convince you that what really defines you and your goodness and your rightness is your sin and your shortcomings, then you have been successfully sidelined from the battle. But friends, if at the core of who you are is this well-guarded understanding that you are a son and a daughter of the King, that you are defined as such because of his death and resurrection, then friends, the enemy will not be able to sideline you. Then your righteousness will never be in question. You are right because of him and your relationship to him, not because of you and what you do, good or bad. Do not let the enemy attack you in that way. I remember when I was a kid, I went to 
the Air Force Base. My dad was in the military, so I understand some of this military sort of jargon just a little bit. I remember going in high school with my dad to work. He was the commander of like the underground command center at office, off at Air Force Base. This was late in his career. And you know, at that point, when you're in high school, your dad's just your dad. He really doesn't know much, right? And I remember going with him to work and he's in his uniform and I don't know why I was going with him, but we start to go down into this you know, command center and it was high security and you weren't really allowed in and every single person we're passing, um, because he outranked most of those guys, would stop at attention and like salute my dad. And my dad would you know, salute back, carry on, and they'd kind of move. And I was kind of like, wow, dad's kind of the BMOC around here. Like, I don't, who knew, you know? And we get down, and we're going down into this, I'm going through all these security checkpoints, and now I'm kind of down in this really, I felt like a, a, you know, a Russian war movie or something I was in. So I'm down here, and there's all these computers and stuff. And I just remember feeling like, man, I have access to this because I'm with him right? I'm with him. That's, that's sort of the, book, the breastplate of righteousness. You're, you're important. You're getting access. You matter. Why? Because of him, because of your relationship with him. So don't let the enemy shift your attention back to you. He's the one that defines your righteousness. He's the one who gives you access to the good life, to eternity with your heavenly father. He's the one who does it. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist and with the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Friends, good footing is so essential, isn't it? This past year, I played in a turkey bowl flag football game. I haven't done this for a while. Um, probably wasn't smart, but thank the Lord I didn't get injured. But it's in Oregon, so it was wet and it was sloppy. And it was all these young kids um, who all had cleats, by the way. I, don't, I mean, once you're in your 40s, you don't own cleats anymore. And so I'm out there just in tennis shoes. And as the day went on and the field got muddier and muddier, I, I could hardly even stand up, let alone run and cut. And a couple times, I'm playing quarterback, and I try to make a cut and just whoop, and you're just right down in the slop, right? And so it just really immobilizes you when you don't have the right footwear. Friends, there is nothing easier to take for granted than sure footing until you don't have it, right? Isn't that how it goes? You feel like you're stable, you feel like you're secure, and then it happens just like that, and all of a sudden, you are down. See, Paul says, what gives you good footing in this world is the gospel of what? Peace. The gospel of peace. In other words, He's saying, what gives you peace in this world? What are you looking to for peace? What keeps you from slipping and falling? What keeps you from worry and anxiety and anguish and fear and apprehension? He's saying, what are you like, relying on to stand in peace? Is it that chunk of money in your savings account? Is it that relationship that you're in? That other person? Are you relying on some other person in this world for peace? Is it that position that you have at work or that status that you've sort of attained or that reputation? Or is it how beautiful people think you are or how smart you are? Is it the popularity? Is it everybody or at least the right people seem to like you? Is it how healthy you are? Like, is it, is it like your, your health and your looks? You know, one of the things I noticed this year is that they do this new thing in high school where when I was a kid, there's just like, Prom king and queen. You just who's the most popular? Let's just keep it honest, right? Like she's the prettiest, he's the best athlete, we voted for him, and it was simple. Now they have like categories. 
They have all these categories, you know. They have the princess of this and the prince and the prince of that and da 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 da. And one of the categories that I noticed this year because my kids are in high school was that you had the kids would vote on the prince and princess of physique. I was like, this feels out of bounds to me. It really does. It feels not right. Like there's something just off about this. I'm thinking, I thought this was Oregon in 2022, but this is happening um, in your school district. At any rate, I, I went to the little assembly because my daughter was part of it. She didn't do the physique thing. Thank you, Jesus. But, but the, the kid who won, the, the guy who won the physique comes out in like a really tight tank top and he was ripped. I was like, that's a high school kid? And you know, all the kids are in the assembly and I was kind of over on the side watching mom and dad taking pictures and stuff. And he's just like flexing and doing all these poses. And A, I was impressed with his muscles. B, I was thinking, this is weird and wrong. And C, here's what I was thinking. We'll see what you look like when you're 62. <laughs> like, don't get too used to it, young guy. All that muscle's gonna sag. Um, see, Friends, when you're standing in peace that comes from the circumstances of your life or the circumstances of this world, you may feel secure. That feels really secure. But the reality is this, you are standing on a slippery surface. Paul is reminding us here that when our peace is grounded in the good news, that no matter what is happening around us or in us, God is at work. He's working all things for His glory and our good. You see, if that's the truth, if, if our feet are secure in that, in the gospel, then now we can shift and move and cut with confidence because we are on firm ground and our traction will never fail us. It'll never be taken away. Friends, let me ask you, where in your life right now can you practice lacing up the peace of knowing God is in control? Where can you practice lacing up the peace of knowing God is in control. Honestly, it's probably in that place where you're tempted to be most concerned and worried and anxious and fearful. That's the, that's the place where you can practice. You see, how differently would you approach that area of your life that you're concerned about because the circumstances look shifty? But if, what, if you just, what if you knew that you knew that you knew that God was going to work it all out in the end, that it was in the palm of his hand, how would that change your approach? You'd be less paralyzed. You'd be less anxious. You'd be more certain and confident that nothing can really knock you down. Because why? You don't stand in the peace of circumstances. You stand in the peace of the gospel. That's the readiness that comes from the peace, from the gospel of peace. You can be ready for anything when you stand on the gospel. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. I love this because in the Roman world, there was a number of different kinds of shields. Little shields that you'd wear on your arm for hand-to-hand combat, a little bit bigger ones. But then the shield that Paul's talking about here were the shields that would go out on the very front lines of the battlefield. Those tall shields, those wide shields that would cover the entire person. And they would be right in the very front. Why? To protect the soldiers and the entire army from the arrows of the opposing forces' archers. They would stand behind these enormous shields. Friends, one of the primary arrows that Satan wants to fire at you One of the first attacks that he will launch your way 
is simply this question. Are you sure you can trust God? Are you sure you can put all your eggs in that basket? Are you sure you can go all in on this Christian life? I mean, shouldn't you like, depend on yourself a little bit? Shouldn't you rely on yourself some? Shouldn't you have a fallback plan and a backup plan? I mean, are you certain that God is really going to come through? I mean, what if he doesn't? What if he abandons you? What if he leaves you? What if the truth is you're really just on your own? This is what the enemy does in the Garden of Eden, isn't it? Are you sure you can trust God? Are you really sure? Always his first line of attack to try and undermine our confidence in our king. This is why in the scriptures, almost every place you read it, I believe a better word for faith is trust. See, in the Bible, it's often translated faith, but I really think the thing that God is after from believers, the thing he longs for from you and me is not just to believe in him, but to trust him. Let me ask you this. Are you actively seeking to trust God in your life? Not do you just kind of trust him in a general sense. Oh yeah, I trust God. Are you actively seeking to trust him in very specific ways, in specific places, with specific people, and in specific situations? Are you practicing carrying the shield of faith? Maybe a better way to ask it is where are you struggling to trust God right now? You're struggling to trust him with your past, with some things that happened in your past, with your future, with what might or could happen down the road, with your marriage, with your singleness, with your work, with your finances, your health. See, the place it's hard to trust is actually the very place you can practice trusting. It's an opportunity to, to grab the shield of faith. Verse 17, take the helmet of salvation. Now, I, what I believe this, this piece of armor is really all about, honestly, is confidence. I believe this, this, the helmet of salvation is, is, is offering you and me confidence as we walk through this world. Because if a, a soldier didn't have a helmet on when he went into battle, he was very vulnerable. He had to be very careful because any shot to the head and he would go down. Sorry about this mic. So a helmet was sort of this insurance policy. It meant you never want to get hit in the head, but the helmet was there just in case you did. And so now you don't have to worry about that as much. The image I have is, is maybe the image of the Winter Olympics. Because remember the Winter Olympics? Happened a few months ago. One of my favorite events in the Winter Olympics, um, because I can't even imagine doing it, is the big air like snowboarding event where these people go and they launch themselves into the air, hundreds of feet into the air. And they, do, they don't just launch, they do spins and twists and flips, and then kind of come down and land softly on the snow. Right? And you're thinking, I mean, there's a lot of events in the Olympics I think, I could do that. That is not one of them. Right? I, I know for a fact. I, I wouldn't even try it. And so that's why I'm impressed with it. And yet, even though they're so good, and even though they always seem to stick the landing, or almost stick the landing at least, they all wear helmets, don't they? Why? In case something goes wrong. Friends, the scriptures are very honest about the fact that at some point, things are going to go wrong. At some point, things are going to go bad in this world. Jesus himself says it. In this world, you will have trouble. It's just a matter of time. At some point in this fight and in this battle, it's going to go poorly 
But here is why, even though that's the case, you can still jump into the air and flip and spin and twist with confidence. Why? You have a backup plan. You have a a safety net. you got a helmet on your head. It's called salvation. It means this. Even if the worst thing, thing happens, even if things go terribly wrong, and it goes as bad as you think it might go, guess what? you still get to spend eternity in the presence and care of your heavenly Father. That's the end of the story no matter how the story goes. You see, putting on the the helmet of salvation is like putting on the hope of heaven. It's reminding ourselves that this life is not all that there is, that we live for something bigger and grander and more eternal and fulfilling than, than will ever be offered here. And so even if you lose everything here, you will have everything there, and you will have there forever and ever and ever. Now, imagine the confidence you would have for whatever you face in life if at the beginning of every day you just intentionally said, I'm putting on the helmet of salvation. I am promised an eternity with my Father in heaven, so come what may. See, that's the posture of a believer That's the confidence that the knowledge of salvation gives us. And then finally, the last one today, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. In the Roman world, there were two types of swords. There were the kind of classic swords that we all think of, the big three to four foot swords, you know, the ones that the knights use. That's the ones we all picture. There's a Greek word for that kind of sword. It's not the word that Paul uses here. The word he uses for the sword of the Spirit is mahera. Say it with me. Mahira. It sounds cool, doesn't it? It is cool. And a mahira was actually like 12 to 18 inches. It was more like a big knife or a dagger. And friends, a mahira was almost exclusively an offensive weapon. It was used to strike a blow. It was used to, to offer a fatal wound to one's enemy. A mahira was used to kill your opponent. But Paul does something really interesting here in his description. He says, you have a mahira, but not just a mahira, he says, you have a mahira of the spirit. You have a spiritual sword, a spiritual dagger. In other words, this is not a mahira that kills, this is a mahira that brings life. This is a mahira that offers love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control into people's lives. And for a Roman soldier, the mahira was the one weapon that he would never leave home without. He would never go anywhere without his mahira on his person. And so friends, carrying the sword of the Spirit means this. Ingesting the Word of God in your life so often, so intentionally, so regularly, so fully that you carry it with you wherever you go. The Word of God is so permeating in your heart and mind that when you speak and when you act and when you live, it's like stabbing people with a Holy Spirit blade that pierces their lives. I mean, this is, this is why when you fight, your fighting doesn't look like the world's fighting. It's not an eye for an eye. It's not revenge. It's not vengeance. It's not cynicism. It's not I'm right, you're wrong. Right? That's the flesh. We're all tempted to fight that way. And yet, 
The sword of the Spirit looks different. The sword of the Spirit offers something more. The sword of the Spirit doesn't kill. It cuts. It's less like a a weapon and more like a scalpel that does surgery in the lives of people and in the world that we live in. And it roots out the evil and it does it in a different way. Because this is why we preach the Bible here. This is why we're Cedar Mill Bible Church. right? Because we understand that the Word of God is so, so powerful. This is why we ask you to study your Bible and read your Bible. This is why in this series we are memorizing eight verses from the Bible. Because when you carry the Word of God with you, you have a weapon of hope and peace and grace and life that can defeat all the evil of this world. And so as we go today, let's read it together one more time. Our memory verse for this week, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13. Here we go, ready? Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Father, today we thank you for your word. We thank you for the weapons that you give us. Help us not to fight as the world fights, but to fight as your, as your children, as your sons and daughter. Help us to fight as people of the gospel, Father. That's our prayer. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.